0: Hi, this Meet Delcom podcast episode is an interlude in between the country case studies episodes. Kind of theoretical, talking about cancel culture, which by our distinguished keynote speaker qualifies as extreme expression. This episode is like a mini conference, having a keynote speaker and the follow-up panel. Our keynote speaker is Professor Erik Heinze from the School of Law, Queen Mary's College, University of London. He is also representing our consortium member from Brussels Media Diversity Institute Global. The panelists are two other professors from our consortium: Lars Nourt from the Midsweden University and Haliki Haroloit from the University of Tartu. Estonia. They reflect upon cancel culture positioned amid extreme expression and contextualize it within deliberative communication which is the core concept of the Telcom project. It appears that in ideal deliberative communication can handle extreme expression including hate speech and cancel culture. The concept of deliberative communication would provide remedies to advance accountability for the general society in the social media age. Thank you for joining us. I'm Urmas the Media Communication Officer. I'm happy to introduce our distinguished keynote speaker, Professor Eric Heinzer from the University of London, who will address cancel culture's standing on the map of public communication.
1: When we're talking about the problem of cancel culture, this has to do with how we can best approach problems of what might be called extreme expression and Extreme expression does not have any one clear or unified definition. One could say that there are several forms of extreme expression, and each form carries its own problems. For example, uh, there's been a lot of uh, debate in recent years about the problem of hate speech or hateful expression. This we could imagine as a kind of highly provocative communication, which is directed against members of socially vulnerable groups, such as groups that are defined on racial, ethnic, national, religious, gender or sexual grounds, or indeed possibly other grounds. So hate speech is one form of extreme expression or commonly perceived to be such. Another prominent example, uh, which has sparked controversy over the years would be something like Holocaust denial, which is of course related to hate speech such as anti-Semitic speech, but is not always precisely the same thing. Because when we're talking about something like Holocaust denial, then we're talking also about whether there are freedoms to contest an historical consensus. Another problem of extreme expression has been hate preaching, right? Uh, problems, particularly of Christians or Muslims, Jews or members of other faiths, holding uh, views that are sought to that are thought to be hateful of uh, particular groups, uh, such as sexual minorities or members of other religious groups, and the degree to which uh, that kind of viewpoint can be treated as a religious liberty. Another kind of extreme expression would be glorification of terrorism. This also has similarities to the other forms of extreme expression, but also has its distinct qualities, because obviously what counts as terrorism, what counts as a terrorist viewpoint, or simply a, uh, a contradictory political or a dissenting political viewpoint, may be very much debated. The very word terrorism, could be seen right as a debatable concept, and uh, tends to presuppose already one particular political viewpoint as the favored one, and therefore the other as the disfavored one. Another form of extreme expression would be pornography. Before the age of the internet, pornography was highly debated. In other words, before the Internet, there was much more of a sense that pornography could be controlled and monitored. And so there used to be debates about whether pornography itself was a kind of hate speech, in particular directed against women by portraying women in demeaning, humiliating roles and in proliferating that image of women throughout uh, the population, of women as degraded, as humiliated, and so forth. So uh, again, without defining extreme expression, I think these are some typical examples of expression that have often uh, been subject to legal regulation and that still tend to spark a lot of debate. And then the question is, well, what are the sort of background principles of free speech that we're assuming when we define those particular categories as forms of extreme expression? One background assumption of free speech could be called a libertarian one, right? When I say libertarian, what I mean by that is a point of view which believes that Individuals must be entitled under law to the greatest possible freedom. Now, what do we mean by the greatest possible freedom? Well, normally the greatest possible freedom would be defined, or you could say the limits of freedom on this model would be defined uh, at the point at which harm might be caused. Now, of course, the problem with that view is that we tend to have radically different views about what constitutes harm. When is somebody harmed? Again, if we go through each of those different forms of extreme expression, such as hate speech, for example, is it enough that people feel personally offended? Is that a sufficient harm, which would justify limiting the individual freedom? Or do we have to show, for example, that somebody acted? on a hateful message but of course if somebody has already acted on a message then you could say well then it's too late to regulate it if harm has already been done on the other hand if we're going to predict the likelihood of harms well that's very very hard to do we would have to suppress massive amounts of speech if we were simply going to try to predict what might cause harm without having any clear evidence that a message will cause harm. So that's one problem with this kind of classical libertarian approach is that it assumes freedom to the point of harm, but harm is a very slippery concept. It's a very debatable concept, and there are very different criteria for what causes harm. Another way of trying to justify our background assumptions about speech would be to imagine what is required for a democratic society. Right. Normally, the premise of democracy is that all citizens, well, are not only entitled to vote, but also are entitled to take part. What does it mean to take part? Well, primarily taking part means expressing oneself, speaking, putting forward ideas. Right. And it could be said that if you do not have the possibility of putting forward your ideas, however controversial they may be, then you are being excluded from democracy. Again, this argument has gained uh, quite a few adherents. But there again, there is still a problem. First of all, the problem of harm still doesn't go away. Should one's ability to participate in a democracy extend so far that a message might harm some other citizen? If so, again, how are we defining harm? Who defines harm? Is harm simply expressing a message which is somehow undesirable or offensive or provocative? If so, well, what do we mean? by undesirable or offensive or provocative? Or does harm have to be something more than that? Do, do we have to show some sort of material harm? But then what counts as material harm? And how grave does it have to be? And then, of course, another problem with this kind of democratic model is that many people argue that democracy also means including those who are most vulnerable and not, in a sense, intimidating them, which it's often said coerces certain groups, particularly vulnerable minorities, into silence. And if they're coerced into silence, then, of course, they are not able to fully participate in democracy so again as you can see there would be much much more to say about these things but i think that these are kind of some of the fundamental building blocks for then understanding what we mean by cancel culture the concept of cancel culture often comes about in academic settings for example in universities where controversial speakers are invited and then other people within the community object to the speaker. But ultimately, this is a problem for all of society. This is not a problem simply for the media or simply for universities or simply for any subset of society. This is ultimately a problem for all of society. When we're talking about cancel culture, we're really talking about free speech. What do we mean by it? Who defines it? How do we define it? How do we draw up regulations and so forth?
0: This was Professor Erik Heinze speaking. We shall go on with our distinguished panelists reflecting on the issue of cancel culture and extreme expression as such. Professor Lars Nord from the mid Sweden University will address the subject.
2: These topics are mainly socially relevant to discuss today. And uh, the problems they define for democracy. We need to debate this widely and uh, to observe what is going on. What I would like to comment upon here is from a perspective of the research project Media.com, Del how deliberative communication as a concept deals with these kind of extreme expressions, whether it deals with them successfully or not successfully, whether it has the intention to take away this kind of extreme expressions, or if you try to, in my way, allow them to exist. And from my point of view, you can see this from two steps. First of all, deliberative communication means that you are very transparent, you have the highest degree of openness, you invite every citizen to participate in discussions, and you don't check their opinions in advance, because then it's not really true deliberations. Um, people in democracies are free to have whatever opinions they have. It's allowed to have different opinions, and it's allowed to bring different opinions into discussions, and in that way you always, of course, take a risk that in these conversations there will be elements of hate speech, there will be maybe glorification of terrorism or whatsoever. You can't have a guarantee because people share a lot of different views and opinions. But the main idea of deliberation is to allow people to bring in their opinions. And at the same time, everyone should have access to the arenas for deliberation. You don't say to a person who advocates hate speech that you should not have a broadband connection because you have the wrong opinions. On the other hand, you are allowed to participate. The infrastructure is there. So the structural conditions for deliberative communication allows everyone to participate. In that way, you can say it might be a problem when these kind of extreme expressions are popping up into discussions. But then most important is the second step. Deliberative communication also demands a lot from citizens participating in these conversations. And from the the point of view in this research project, Bedial.com, we say that we also demand a lot from citizens' behavior. We think that citizens should be listening and arguing when they participate in this discussion. And I have very hard to believe that the person completely obsessed with hate speech is ready to listen and is ready to arguing with other people and share this opinion and have an ongoing discussion and change his or her opinion. So, if the requirements of listening and arguing among individuals is not there, I mean, then there is no deliberation at all. Deliberation requires these elements, and deliberation also requires a kind of impartiality and non-strategic behaviour. If you jump into discussion just with blind eyes, just with the only idea to make other people change their opinions and you are not listening to other people, then you are not performing in a deliberate way as an individual. And these factors relating to individual behavior is really the best guarantee in, from the deliberative communication concept that you actually avoid extreme expression, because extreme expressions don't go along with non-strategic behavior, they don't go along with reasoning, trust, listening to other people, interaction with other people. So in that sense, deliberative communication has readiness to deal with extreme expression in its ideal form. Then it's another issue whether actually uh, deliberative communication exists in this ideal model that I describe. But in theory, deliberative communication provides elements that actually can handle extreme expression. And uh, I think this is important to bear in mind when we are discussing these issues about hate speech and extreme expression.
0: This was Professor Lars Noord speaking. Another panelist comes from the University of Tartu, Professor Haliki kihara
3: Extreme speech as well as canceling culture has become more visible since social media. I would say that while journalism was dominating in public communication, it was easier to control the communication ethics because... It is easier for a profession to set ethical standards and principles. For example, you should not harm anyone, you should be balanced, etc., etc. And you should tell truth. However, after critical turn, when Internet and later social media enabled everyone to speak publicly, then problems with general communication culture as well as little awareness of communication ethics, becomes more visible. Now MediaDelcom approaches hatred speech and extreme speech, as well as cancelling culture, from a holistic point of view. It means that we do not believe that only legal regulation and punishments would help to improve the communication culture. We rather believe that both professional culture as well as general communication competencies, media usage practices, and journalism culture, as well as ethical and legal regulation, all these domains together should be taken into consideration when we really want to find out why some social groups need to use hate speech and why they do not listen. Listening culture is one possibility to reduce extreme speech and cancelling culture. Cancelling culture is a new phenomenon. It is not the same type of extreme speech as we have used, because cancelling culture is related to social media and campaigns against some individuals or groups. We have to take cancelling culture very seriously, because this is exactly one aspect where accountability is not rooted in contemporary communication discourse, I would say. While in professional journalism, accountability is a very important aspect, and it is the core idea of professionalism, then the lay members of society in many cases do not feel that they are accountable because there are no accountability mechanisms for lay members. That is, I think, something we need also to think and discuss how to create accountability system or accountability instruments for the lay members of society.
0: Thanks to professor Haliki Haralait. This was our mini-conference upon cancel culture and its relations with deliberative communication that MediaDelcom project is working upon. Our podcasts will go on with country case studies presentations. We still have four country cases to go. So stay tuned to hear us soon. And of course, listen to our earlier podcasts.